Well, as we're jumping into um, <clears throat> 1 Samuel 22 today, um, you can open that up in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen, but uh, and if you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seats in front of you probably. Um, you can look around and find some. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, take that one with you when you go. Uh, if you need a better one, let us know. We'll get you one. Um, so we are, we're excited to be jumping in. Thank you guys for leading us this morning um, in song. It's just uh, that the hymn, it as well, is just always gets me every time. It's my very, very, very favorite. And I know everyone's out there like, yeah, me too. Like, that's not, not special. That's, uh, that's all of us love that one. So uh, anyway, thank you guys for that. And, and I think as we look in this account, um, as we're looking in this passage, I'm hoping, uh, I think there's a lot to learn from the people, from the account of what's going on. And so I'm going to be unpacking that as we go. And my prayer is, that you're listening to hear what God has from you in this, what insights He has for you um, as we go through this, um, what He wants you to see. So let's jump in. 1 Samuel chapter 22, starting in verse 1. So y'all remember David is on the run uh, from Saul, and he's already been bouncing around several places. So in verse 1 begin, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So first, again, we talk about regularly the, the recognition that this is not Narnia, this isn't Oz, there's nothing like that. This is, this is actually, these are actual places. Um, Adullam has been found. Um, they know where the city of Adullam is. And in fact, I think we've got a couple of pictures up here. Um, there is actually a, uh, a um, uh, cemetery kind of thing, a funeral. A, what is the word I'm looking for here? A grave site. Um, oh, no, go back. Uh, of a sheik that, that, that has been built over the top of the caves of Adullam. Um, but there's still an entrance that you can get to if you're willing to, to go down into some of the caves there. Now you can look from the inside. This is what they look like from the inside. Obviously, we have no way of knowing for absolute certain that these are the actual caves that, that David and his people hid in, uh, but these are at Adullam, and they are caves. So it's, um, it's a pretty good bet that this is, this is the ones being talked about there. Um, they're real places, and uh, in fact, we will hope, hopefully before long be having an Israel uh, interest meeting for the 2024 trip um, in June of next year. But um, uh, it's, it's just amazing to go and experience some of these types of places. So... So David is gathered here, he's hiding here, and a whole bunch of his uh, really high-quality friends are going to show up and, uh, and join him in the cave, and his family is. So let's talk about that real quick. Um, his family is probably in danger from Saul. Um, Saul has become unhinged. If those of us who have been trying to be sympathetic with Saul um, up until now through this account um, are just going to have to let go of that now. We, we don't get to have that anymore um, I'm sure that as Saul has become more unhinged um, and more uh, dark in his thinking, that now what's happened slowly but surely as sin has crept in and taken over, and we're going to watch Saul go from, from being, you know, not, not listening to God um, to then being in rebellion against God and then going to war against uh, David, his own um, uh, almost like adopted son almost, that could go to war against David and then his own son. And then in this chapter, we're going to get to see Saul go to war against God himself. Um, and so as you see this, you can imagine David's family probably super excited to have to leave their homes under threat of Saul's madness. And so they come and hide in the caves with David. 
uh, Jesse, uh, David's mom, uh, his seven brothers, and anyone else in the household. But notice, you get this list, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. It sounds like a church, doesn't it? Like that's exactly the kind of people who, who join him, those who are like sheep without a shepherd. Um, those who have been isolated, whose shepherd has gone to, gone to war against them, who are now indebted to the king, which is exactly what Samuel warned them would happen with his taxes and his abuses. Um, the people who have joined David are those who are weary and heavy laden. We've talked several times already about how David is a precursor example of, of who Christ is going to be for us. Um, who have joined David are the ragamuffins. I mean, if you've never read Ragamuffin Gospel or listened to the Ragamuffin Band, I highly recommend it. They're both um, excellent resources when it comes to um, engaging with the truth of our own Ragamuffin status. In fact, some, well, something that was fascinating, um, when we opened up the executive uh, assistant position again, uh, after Kim decided to go work at Brook Hill, um, one, of our, one of the people in the church was like, oh, I've got a perfect person in mind. And he contacted Kendall, who actually now is, um, the exec, my executive assistant, and, and what Kendall told him was, well, I don't know if I want to work in a church. And so he's like, oh, okay, well, never mind. Which, which if he had known better, he would have been like, perfect. That's exactly who we hire. Everyone on our staff is someone who's not going to work at church, or in some cases not going to work at church ever again. Like we've, many of us have experienced that the challenges and, da and, and dangers and traumas of working in a church setting. And, and here we have dedicated ourselves to creating something more healthy, more um, hopefully along the lines of what God has established. And part of that is by acknowledging we don't have it all together. No one gets to pretend that here. We don't have it all together. We're all, uh, none of us know what we're doing. We're all just as confused as everybody else. And we're just trying to follow our shepherd, but we're like sheep um, and which is not a compliment. And so people who have little to offer David are gathering to David. Isn't that fascinating? It's not the wealthy. It's not the powerful. It's the people who have essentially nothing to offer David which is fair because David essentially has nothing to offer them, right? He is also wandering, fleeing, homeless. Maybe he's still got some bread left over from Nob, but, but probably not by now, right? And so they are like, wait for it, a dysfunctional family. Um, that's exactly who they are. In fact, when I use that phrase about us, that we're a dysfunctional family, this is really what I mean. I don't mean, uh, hopefully, abusively uh, dysfunctional, just traumatized, People who have been traumatized by trying to follow Christ in a broken world, in a fallen world. We are like strangers in a strange land. I'm broken and wandering. Now, not all who wander are lost, but we are all wandering. Um, we just feel like we're not at home here. We walk around, yes, sometimes in wonder and awe of the amazing things that God has placed here on this planet and with the amazing people that God has placed here. But what separates Christians um, from the others, from the rest of the world, isn't that we have it together. It isn't that we're perfect. It isn't that we don't sin. It isn't that we aren't broken or distressed or depressed or discouraged. It isn't any of those type of things. The difference between us and the world is that we know we don't have to wander alone. Um, not only do we have each other, other sheep to wander with, but we have a shepherd who will lead us. And as sheep, it doesn't always look like he knows what he's doing. But that's because we're sheep and we don't know what we're doing. And he's leading us to good places, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way, and that's tough for us. Can we trust in him? And that's what we're talking about. We walk together, and we're guided by a shepherd, our paraclete, uh, the Greek word that's often translated counselor, someone who walks alongside. 
So I love this about David so much. We've had a recent, maybe you saw it in the last few days, um, the most recent report on suicide statistics in America. And pretty much across the board, they are continuing to go up. Um, they are continuing to rise. For about 15 years, they were getting lower and lower and lower until about 20 years ago. And about 20 years ago, they started rising um, quite precipitously. And, um, and in fact, the, the number one age uh, and number one population that was hit hardest, apparently, according to this most recent statistical increase, was adult men. <clears throat> and so um, the, the, it was fascinating to read the report to see them jump into all these possible explanations, and they ran all these cross-analysis of it to see if they could figure out what are the patterns. Um, and it is intriguing to me that one of the things they did not evaluate were people's religious views. Because obviously that can't be the answer, so we don't even need to study that, right? It can't be anything having to do with that that's connected to it. What they did discover that was strongly connected is that apparently we have what they call an epidemic of loneliness in America, which is not surprising to me. Um, think about the last 20 years. What has become more stable in the last 20 years? And I think if you think very long, you realize the answer is nothing. Nothing has become more stable. Everything has become less stable, more isolated. Um, and so all of that played together means humans who are meant to, who God wired to live within a community. Um, he made us to be that way. He wants us to be that way. That what we discover is we're, um, of course, the response to that is um, the type of uh, despair that leads even to suicide. Um, I love that David <clears throat> is faithful to continue the struggle. It isn't that he's got it all together. It's that he's faithful to continue the struggle. He is faithful to trust in his friends, even though they're ragamuffins and they're going to fail him and he's going to fail them. And he is faithful to walk with his shepherd, even when he doesn't understand it. And at this point, surely David is as confused as he can possibly be by how God is leading him. Verse three, and David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. Oh, let me real quick comment. If you're one of those people who is dealing with a kind of despair, that creates even suicidal types of feelings and thoughts and that kind of stuff. Don't face that in isolation. Reach out. Reach out and let someone know. We have several sermons on our website just about suicide um, and about what the Bible teaches about some of those things and the encouragement of how to get help and how to reach out and find uh, other sheep and the shepherd in the midst of that, those trials and difficulties. So please don't ever have to face, you don't have to face that alone. Please don't try to face it alone. All right, verse 3, David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. <clears throat> he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now David has tried to go to an enemy of Israel before. He went to, the, to Gath, to the Philistines, and that didn't go so well. And now he's going to what is traditionally another enemy of Israel, the Moabites. So what is it about David that would make David think that maybe he could take his family and leave them in Moab. Well, if you remember your lineage, you'll remember that David is the great-grandson of a woman named Ruth the Moabite. And so probably this is, this is him going back to family, going back to ancestors of his, just back a few generations, and finding a place there with the king of Moab. And apparently the king of Moab is willing to do that to protect David's family while David is on the run. Um, and at first, it seems like David is going to stay there as well. David has found a safe place. Um, it seems like he's found a safe place in the fortress in Moab, the fortress of the king of Moab. And he's now waiting. I love that he's not waiting for what Saul's going to do. He's waiting for what, in David's language, God has for him. 
Um, this, is, this is the way we live everyday life, isn't it? In the end, we think we've got these plans, but the truth is we're just going to see what God has for us today, and rarely is it what we planned. Um, I don't know about you, but my plans rarely go well. It is a go the way I planned, at least. Sometimes they go well, but they don't go the way I planned it. Um, and so just having that in mind, recognizing the truth of this, and I love that David lives this way. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in this stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. Gad appears out of nowhere. This prophet Gad appears out of nowhere for us and gives him notice to leave the Moabite fortress. Gad is going to become a significant person in 2 Samuel in David's life as an advisor and as, a, as someone who speaks for God in David's life. But apparently at this point, he's just one of the ragamuffins um, who God has sent along to David and God speaks to him. This may be when Gad becomes a prophet. Um, we really don't know much about him beyond that. And it's just in time because Saul has begun to circle in. Verse 6, now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was seated, was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? Now this is wild. It seems like here you have Saul gathered around with a bunch of Benjaminites, his clan. Uh, keep in mind, Saul has not united the clans of Israel. <clears throat> a couple of times he's gotten them to fight together, but they are now totally still desperate and disparate um, uh, clans. They fight against each other as often as against any type of enemy. And what he has surrounded himself, it seems like Saul's influence has been limited, narrowed down to his home clan, which is kind of sad and pathetic. Um, he's getting more and more paranoid. It's fascinating that he acknowledges here that he has been um, playing favorites with the people of Israel because you're from my tribe. I've been giving you uh, other people's land and other people's properties, vineyards and, and, and orchards, and, and I've been putting you in prime uh, political positions, those, those nice little you know, kickback type of positions. He acknowledges that here to his own clan and says, listen, if, if David becomes the next king, which it looks like is what's going to happen, you're not going to get these choice appointments anymore, so shouldn't you be all loyal to me? Everything about this is wrong. Uh, Saul has gone from being the king of Israel to being a mafia uh, don of some kind. This is, this is how he sees himself. This is now uh, totally out of line and inappropriate. And now he's turning against his own family. In fact, he's now implying that Jonathan and David are conspiring somehow against Saul. And remember, please remember, there's absolutely nothing, and we've gotten to see behind the veil, there's absolutely nothing to indicate that David and Jonathan's friendship is in any way a threat to Saul. In fact, we've even daydreamed about how amazing Saul's reign could have been if he had had David as his right-hand man and Jonathan as his left-hand man, that these were the two top leaders in his kingdom. What would have stopped Saul? Nothing. Think of how the boundaries of Israel might have expanded, how his kingdom could have grown under the leadership of these two godly and ridiculously loyal men. And yet Jonathan, I mean, Saul cannot handle their friendship. There is a covenant between them, and the covenant of friendship is there, and he is so ridiculously overcome with paranoia about it. I don't know if you've ever faced that. 
But some people just can't do that. If you're friends within an organization with someone else, other people are going to be going, well, what the, the, they must be working together against us, or they must be trying to, versus recognizing, no, the friendship of people who work with you and who, who are with you and who are in the same church as you and who are whatever, that can be a strength to you, not a weakness. So it's something to be aware of. So he's getting more and more paranoid. This is his kingdom now. Um, and he's sitting under the terebinth tree. Now, again, going back to the Israel picture, we've got a picture of a group of us sitting under terebinth trees. Um, and you can see why. This is a desert, and uh, terebinth trees, the way they grow there, spread out in such a way, they almost create like a room. Like they create beautiful shade that's there. And, uh, and so when we're walking like here on the path to Angedi, and um, we stop and, and worship together in the shade of the terebinth trees. Um, and we talk a little bit about terebinth trees while we're there as well. And so this is, this is what kind of what God intends. And we see that all through Scripture. When you're reading Scripture, you're going to see so-and-so was supposed to meet at this terebinth tree, or so-and-so was sitting in the terebinth tree. And so Saul should be sitting there with his men, relaxing and resting under the terebinth tree, but that's not what we get. Instead, we get Saul sitting sullen and angry with his spear in his hand. Uh, and so I need to, we need to change the picture up just a little bit to kind of get a picture of Saul. Uh, some of you catch that. Uh, can you all see Saul over there? He doesn't have a spear. He's got a kitty cat there. The, uh, the mafia Don, Don Corleone there in Terebinth. The image of Saul sitting sullen and angry with a spear in his hand. And remember, this spear has a nasty habit of flying places. Um, it gets launched on a regular basis. There you go. I drew, drew in the closer one. There you go. Um, he is angry. He is bitter. He is paranoid. Um, and he's starting to accuse his own kinsmen of aspiring against him. Um, listen to the words of this king that you're about to hear. And I wish I could say that it's it's really strange thing to hear this kind of whining uh, victimization from leaders. But let's be honest, it isn't. Um, it's often we hear leaders um, complain and whine. They have all this authority and all this power and all this influence, and yet they're whining about how they're being victimized. It happens all the time. We see it with worldly leaders today. It's all too common with all of us. So come cringe with me as we look at this. Here's Saul. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Saul is so paranoid that as he chases David around the country, he's imagining David uh, setting up an ambush somewhere, just waiting for the opportunity to cut uh, Saul's throat in the night. And so he's picturing this imagery now of Saul, of, of David and Jonathan somehow conspiring to set up an ambush with him. And the whole time, he's the one chasing David. David is running from him constantly. Look, this is a, uh, the, this is the words of a leader to his people. By the end of this chapter, we're going to get to hear some other words of a different leader to his people. Um, and it's going to be pretty impressive how different they are. This counterbalance between the type of leader Saul is and the type of leader David is, is going to be played over several chapters um, as we see this uh, more and more as we dive in more. Um, okay, so uh, Robert De Niro is Al Capone uh, saying, am I alone in this world? Or Dr. Evil asking for someone to throw him a bone. Um, this, is, this is Saul has now his villain memes going full bore. And so of, course, so of course we should cue our villain music again because our favorite right-hand psycho is back. Um, this is the kind of people who Saul draws around him. Verse 9, then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse come to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Don't you just love this guy? 
So he's back. Uh, Doeg is back, and this is going to be his highlight. It's going to be his big moment here. Um, Doeg is bucking here for a promotion. Every single sermon and commentary, I'm pretty sure that I looked at, used the word ingratiating uh, to describe what Doeg is doing here. He's not an Israelite. The Edomite are the descendants of Esau. Um, in fact, and they often, sadly, are enemies of Israel as well. Um, a few hundred years after 1 Samuel happened, after these events happened, the Babylonians would absolutely wipe out the Edomites. They would be utterly destroyed by the Babylonians. Um, I think here we have the example of someone who has no love for Israel. He has no love for God. Personally, I don't even think he has any love for Saul. I think Doeg um, has a love affair with Doeg. Um, I think Doeg is a big fan of Doeg, and he's trying to get ahead in the world, and he's discovered how maybe I can get ahead right here. Um, it, we, we know from looking at him uh, a couple of chapters ago, uh, when he was introduced in his little moment, um, that he was described as kind of the chief of, of Saul's flocks. Older translations actually will say the chief of his donkeys, um, which is not a play on Doeg's as so much as it is Doeg takes care of the things that Saul can't take care of. Remember, Saul's not great with taking care of donkeys. We learned a long time ago. And so now Doeg takes care of these type of things. Um, he's going to be Saul's special little yes man. It's a great lesson here. One, um, be wary about partnering with people who are only after their own interests. If, their interests, if the only reason they're with you is because their interests happen to align with yours right now, that's not safe. The minute their interests don't align with yours, they will turn on you. At the same time, many in politics learn that being ingratiated to a leader can be dangerous. If you're willing to cross lines and break rules and laws for the sake of having the approval of a leader, very often that leader is going to ask you to do more and more distasteful and eventually evil things, and you, feel, you may feel stuck in that. The rule always for Christians is that we obey the highest authority. We'll come back to that in a minute. Psalm 52, um, if you didn't know, David, during these moments when he discovers these things, when he learns these things, often will write a poem um, or a song about it, and we have several of them in the Psalms. Psalm 52 actually begins this way, to the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. That's pretty specific, right? So this is exactly that moment, and this is what David thinks of Doeg. So now we're going to get David's opinion on this. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all the words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Now in a minute, we're going to hear a little bit more from Doeg and then we're done with him. We will not hear from Doeg again in scripture. Uh, Hebrew legend at least has two different possible endings for Doeg. One is that Doeg is the man who runs to David and tells him that Saul is dead and in fact takes credit for having killed him. Um, that's later in the Samuel book. And, and that actually, David immediately has that man executed. So according to he the Hebrew legend, that that's one possible ending of Doeg. The other is that Doeg gets so important in Saul's kingdom that he actually develops his own school um, and begins to teach 
Hebrew thought and, and the Torah to other people, that Doeg becomes something of a priest or a prophet, and that eventually his teaching becomes so evil that his own students turn against him and kill him. Um, either way, you, you couldn't wish either one of those on a better guy. Um, so, but if you want to have pity on Saul, you're going to have to leave that behind now because Saul has declared war on David, and now we see Saul declare war on God. Verse 11, then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all of his father's house, and the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. So here you go. This is the moment. We've, we've all seen this movie. We know what's going to happen. Saul, Don Corleano Saul, sitting under his tamarisk tree, spinning his spear in the dirt, has now called for Ahimelech and all of his family and all of his priests to, to be brought before him. Verse 12, and Saul says, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here am I. Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Ahimelech makes his defense, and it's very rational. Ahimelech then answers the king, Who among your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? Who is the captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I have inquired of God for him, meaning David? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. Ahimelech is apparently completely ignorant of the conflict going on between David and Saul. And of course, why wouldn't he be? Why would he know anything about this? Until just like yesterday, David has been in Saul's home, the head of Saul's bodyguard, his son-in-law, for goodness sake. And now all of a sudden Ahimelech was supposed to supernaturally know, oh, Saul is mad at David. And keep in mind, the, all the things that Saul is mad at David about, David is completely innocent of as well. So Ahimelech is like doubly innocent of any crime against Saul. He's done absolutely nothing against Saul. Even David has done nothing against Saul. And yet Saul is intent on killing David. He wants to blame somebody. So he lashes out. And I actually think in this passage, <clears throat> I think part of what's happening here is that um, he is actually, I think Ahimelech is actually making the case, hey, this is, um, th this is actually, you have no real reason to be questioning David too. Maybe so. Ahimelech could not be more innocent, and it seems that David is. Verse 16, the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. This is a great moment, a great reminder of that ethic, the correct ethic, which is we are supposed to follow the highest authority. And the God is always the highest authority. We went over this in detail several times during the COVID crisis in order to learn how do we engage? How do we apply this understanding? How do we, how do we apply this understanding in our everyday lives? Not just in crisis moments, but every day that who we follow is the highest authority. And in no situation probably are we the highest authority. But even if God has not spoken to something, well, then we respond to the next highest authority. If that authority has not spoken, then we respond to the next highest authority. But the highest authority is always who wins, and the king does not trump God. And the king has just instructed his men to commit murder against dozens of God's priests, and his men say, no. Now, again, 
You've seen the movie, so you know what happens next. This has been repeated over and over again in different tropes. These servants are right up to a point. Now, I will tell you, by the way, I don't understand why they did not defend the priests. I actually think they have even a higher calling than the one they go to. It's good that they do not obey the king's illegal, immoral, and evil instruction, but I'm not sure I understand why they did not then turn and defend the priests, but they didn't. Verse 18, then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. Meaning 80, he killed 85 priests, maybe by his own hand. And Nob, the city of priests, he then went to the city and he put, this, put it to the sword, man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. Now, you may be remembering back a few chapters and going, isn't that really similar to what God told Saul to do to Amalek? I mean, if it's wrong for Saul, for, for Saul to tell Doeg to do it, why isn't it wrong for God to tell Saul to do it? And by the way, it is, it is very, very similar language. Then that's intentional. I'll explain why I think that is in a second. But keep in mind, God is the only one with the authority, with the insight, with the understanding to make life and death type calls like this. That's why he never, he never gives up his right and his authority to end human life or to call for the ending of human life. But he never assigns that authority to us. We don't just get to decide that. And this, this is a minor version of that. This is kind of a small version of that that maybe will help us understand it. But it's kind of like the difference between me doing surgery on you or a surgeon doing surgery on you, right? I'm just stabbing you if I'm the one doing surgery on you, right? I have, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just cutting. I, don't, I have no clue what I'm... I don't have the, in, the insight, the information, the understanding, the wherewithal, any of that kind of stuff. But a trained surgeon knows exactly when to cut and how to cut and when to cut that, and exactly where. That's why we trust them to do it. We don't trust ourselves to do it, right? We don't just trust the guy in the next room to do it. We're looking for somebody who has that correct insight, that correct understanding. Well, now multiply that out times an infinite amount, and you recognize why it is God's right and God's authority to say, I'm calling for this type of destruction. Saul knows this. And then Saul calls for this kind of destruction, apparently, as if he were God. Saul is clearly taking on the role of God in Israel. Saul has apparently decided, I am the God in Israel. Not just king, but God. Listen to what Romans 11 uh, says. We read this, um, it's not going to be on the screen. We read it this morning as part of our um, uh, communion time. Romans 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might need to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Saul clearly thinks he is the same as God in this moment. He gives a similar command. And it may be one of the great moments of tragic irony. Doeg has proven to be a better servant of Saul than Saul was of God. Verse 20. But one of the sons of Amalek, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, and hear the grieving in David's voice, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Notice the difference of the way David speaks to his man 
versus how Saul spoke to his. It's intriguing to me that he even wants to take some responsibility for this. He wants to own this. I, I think it's key when, God, when good leaders can own a mistake, can own a misunderstanding, can own that. Um, I think more of our families would be intact and our marriages would be strong and our families would be strong if leaders in the home were quick to own a mistake, even a totally understandable one, maybe even one that wasn't really a mistake at all, but that still caused pain in somebody else's life. If we were able to quickly say, I can see that what I've done has hurt you. I can see that what I did hurt you. Even if I wasn't wrong to do it, what I did hurt you. And I can own that. And I'm sorry for that. And, and I can take on what I can. Saul blames, attacks, and defends. David owns, sympathizes, and protects. One of these is a good shepherd and is meant to be an example of that for us. Um, I'm encouraged by that. But this passage also introduces Abiathar, Ahimelech's son. And I promised last week that I would reference and talk about there's a little bit of a crisis in this passage um, that I want to make, uh, bring, bring now to attention and talk through just very quickly. One, because this was something, my first time I read through this and did a little research on it, was something that brought something together for me in a new way that really led me to worship in a way that I had never worshipped before. Let me go back. So remember Eli. Eli was the high priest, probably the high priest, um, that we learned about way back at the beginning of, of Samuel. Maybe the final, officially the final one for Israel. He had at least two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Neither one of them were good guys. Phinehas had at least two sons, Ahatub and Ichabod. If you remember, Ichabod was born when his dad and his grandfather died and the tabernacle was destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant was taken. His name means, where is the glory? His mother gave him that name at that moment. Ahitub has at least two sons, Zadok and Ahimelech, who we met in the last chapter. Ahimelech has a son named Abiathar. Okay, so you follow me? So what is happening when we see in Mark chapter 2, verses 25 through 26, we have this. This is Jesus speaking. And Jesus said to him, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. But the Samuel account, 1 Samuel 21.1 says this, then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? So in 1 Samuel we have Ahimelech being the priest who is there. But Jesus, when he tells this account, he says Abiathar, the high priest, not Ahimelech. How do we, how do we reconcile this? Well, there's lots of different possible ways to reconcile this. Um, this is something that some people like to make a lot of. This is the kind of example some people like to make a lot of. And what struck me was, as I finally dug in and made a lot of it, I was blown away. So here's an option. Here's an option for you. <clears throat> One is, Abiathar was the high priest, and his father was a priest, not the high priest. Um, that could have happened easily. Um, that's strange, but very plausible. That at this time, Ahimelech was a priest, but Abiathar was the high priest. Abiathar seems young when he runs to David, but maybe he's the high priest. That's very plausible. Number two, 
Abiathar, who becomes the high priest, is Jesus uses his eventual title to describe him. He's, he's the high priest Abiathar. And Abiathar was certainly there, and later he became high priest, and maybe that's the way Jesus is referencing it. Like maybe if I said, you remember when President Trump had that TV show called The Apprentice? And you would go, well, I mean, yeah, but he wasn't president when he had that show, The Apprentice. But see, I would still be using the title to describe the right person so you know who I was talking about when I referenced that, if that makes sense. That's a very distinct possibility. A third one is, Abiathar, who does become a lifelong friend and priest in David's life, may have just been better known, more famous, more people would have known the reference to him. That to say the time of Abiathar versus the time of Ahimelech would be like saying the era of Lincoln versus the era of Buchanan. So if I said, yeah, this, says, this such and such happened in the United States when Buchanan was president, 94% of you would go like, we had a president named Buchanan? That's weird. <laughs> Funny name, right? Um, and if I said the era of Lincoln, you could probably guess plus or minus 200 years when I'm talking about, right? If you're like most Americans. <laughs> now, here's a fourth option. I'm going to come back to it. But the fourth option is Jesus meant to say Ahimelech and accidentally said Abiathar. I'll let you sit on that. Shocked by that for a second. Number five, which is one of my favorite theories that's out there, is that Jesus is testing them. That Jesus intentionally says the wrong name to see if anyone will call him on it. They don't, which proves they don't really know the story. I think that's a stretch. But it's, it's one of the theories that's out there, right? Maybe this is just a Samuel issue. This is just an issue in Samuel. We've talked about how things aren't always in chronological order in Samuel. Names are sometimes confusing for us. Numbers really throw us off sometimes in Samuel. Maybe this is a Samuel thing. So let me show you what I mean. Remember, this is one big book in the Hebrew Scripture, right? This isn't two books. This is one book. 1 Samuel 23, 6, which we'll see next week. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David and to Keilah, he, came down, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. There you go. Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech. 2 Samuel 8.17 says this, And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary. So wait, who was whose son? Right? That's just a reversal of the other paths. And so maybe, maybe there's just all kinds of, maybe they both have the same name, and they both share the same name. Or maybe their names change at some point during their life. Or maybe there were several people named Abiathar and Ahimelech. We really, there's, all those options are on the table one of those is the most likely that, that one of those answers those questions. However, this is what struck me as I was discussing this with somebody when I was going through it the first time. And it really helped me and it inspired me to worship. So I want to share it with you. The question I was asked was, what if, if Jesus tells this story and he says, you know, back in the days when Abiathar was the high priest, and if Peter had said, I thought that was Ahimelech, and Jesus had said, sorry, right, Ahimelech, what would that do to our theology? And the answer is nothing. The scripture doesn't teach us that Jesus lived a flawless life, meaning that he never stubbed his toe, he never overslept, he never missed a math question on a math quiz. That's not what scripture teaches us. It's not that every single time Jesus drew back a hammer, he immediately sunk every nail with only one hit. See, I was raised on this, I think, this picture of Jesus experiencing life as God on earth. That he kind of floated two inches above the ground. And then when he laid down, he was kind of in this little white cocoon that kind of had a halo and glowed everywhere he went. And then when it says that Jesus was tempted, what it means is he was going through the motions of being tempted. 
that when it says that Jesus had to grow in favor with God and man, that that doesn't really mean he had to grow in favor with God and man. That when Jesus, it tells us Jesus had to learn obedience, that, that's just a euphemism for something else other than that he had to learn obedience. When it says that Jesus Christ um, didn't know, when Jesus said, uh, uh, not even the Son knows the day and the hour, but only the Father. That Jesus is just saying those types. Like, like even in the garden, when Jesus is going to get crucified, surely what that means is, yes, okay, crucifixion, bad, sure, but he's the Son of God. It's not like he's really hurting. He's the Son of God, right? He's not really experiencing life as a human with all the horrors that can go with that. And I think I was kind of raised with that in my mind, is that Jesus was doing this human costume thing. That he kind of looked a little bit human, but the truth was he was in perfectly pure white robes all the time, and he kind of glowed, right? And was very white, right? Not at all Jewish. So this, this was the picture I think that I was kind of raised with, and this was for some reason of all of those different things I just cited, this was the one that suddenly struck me and made it clear to me that Jesus Christ was experiencing life as a human being. I don't know if that's what happened. I don't know if that's the correct explanation. The others are probably more likely. But for some reason, this is the one that struck me to my core to make me realize Jesus was experiencing life as a human being. He was tired, and he was hungry, and he was exhausted at times, and he was sick at his stomach. Jesus pooped. He sweated. He got irritable. He went without sleep. He faced all these different things. He experienced life as a human being. There were times when he smelled bad, and when he had to take a bath, and there were times when he didn't want to stop doing what he was doing. And there were times when he may have broken things. And he may have hit his finger with a hammer. If he didn't at least have a wheelbarrow pitch over, then he wasn't really tempted in all the ways I've been. I think Jesus experienced life as a human being. And that's shocking to me. That he experienced life as a human being. These are my words. Jesus experienced all of this and he did not sin. When I realized that Jesus was as tired, as lonely as irritated, as bored, and as hurt as I have ever been, and yet did not sin, which allowed him to face the cross for me. He didn't have to face the cross for his own sin. He got to face it for me. I don't claim to understand what Jesus' potential to sin could have been, but what I know is that he was tempted in every way, in ways that I can't fathom, and still didn't sin. And I'm the beneficiary of his holy life, and his sacrificial death. And for some reason, this account is the one that brought that home to me. That Jesus was truly experiencing life as a human. Yes, truly and fully God. Truly omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. And yet I believe those are the very kind of things that Philippians 2 is representing when it says that he emptied himself and took on the form, the shape, what it means to be man, not just man, but man who is a servant, and not just a servant, a servant to the point of death, and not just death, but death on a cross. And that Jesus really was horrified at the thought of what he was about to face in the garden. That he really was sweating drops of blood. He was really begging the Father to take that cup from him. And yet, he faced it out of obedience to the Father and out of his love for us. And that drove me to worship in a way that I had never worshipped before, to thank him for what he did for us. Is that not sufficient? Is what he did not sufficient for us to trust in him over ourselves? So I would, I would ask that you would stand with me if you would.
And I hope you would accept the invitation of this free gift of eternal life that he took on for us to pay that price. Um, if you've been through our welcome home process and you want to come and join our dysfunctional family, if you've talked to Lance and others, you can do that in a moment while we're singing. If you have something else to share with us or for us to pray with you about, you can do that as well here or in the corner. We'd love to pray with you. Let me share with you from the writer what the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 4, <clears throat> starting in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The very words of God.